hello and welcome to episode 62 of the 1099 for the week of October 3rd, 2016. I'm your host, as always, Josiah Renauden, and with me today is the author of Critical Path, How to Review Video Games for a Living, a community developer at Ubisoft, and a 23-year vet, I think I got that right, Dan Emmerich. Dan, how are you doing today? Yeah, well, okay, this interview is over, because now you just made me feel incredibly <laughs> old. Uh, other than, I was doing fine until that introduction. I was see, having a pretty good day. Yeah, that's, see, I, I, that's what I'm here for. <laughs> I, I, I'm just here to make you feel bad. I was looking through your LinkedIn, uh, your entire LinkedIn, because I was creeping. So you probably got a notification, that's like, fine. random guy named Josiah Renaud is now creeping your LinkedIn. And I was just going through all the different jobs you've had, and like, man, you have done... A little bit of everything. I mean, I feel like I scratched the surface there because you've been senior editor at GamePro, executive editor at GameSport Magazine, a senior editor at Games Radar, senior editor at Official Xbox Magazine. The, it, it kept going on, but I didn't again want to make you feel old. So yeah, let's... but now I've been I've gone from senior editor to senior citizen in the span of one <laughs> podcast. It's interview, the natural so. progression. I think that's how <laughs> that works. Like sometimes you're both a senior citizen and senior editor at the same that's time. That's right. Uh, well, I'm 82, and I think I'm pretty spry. <laughs> a spry uh, 82, a very yeah. healthy 82, still eating those granola bars. So let's right. start here, if you don't mind. What what was your balance between full time and freelance work throughout your kind of journalism career? Because I mean, now you are at Ubisoft. You were doing community management for Activision at one point. So what was kind of the balance between working full time and doing contract work? Well, when I started out as a writer. Uh, in like 93, I was fresh out of college and I started freelancing immediately because I had done some writing for local papers and local arts weeklies and things like that. So I had been what my, uh, my professor, uh, encouraged me to call quote, regionally published rather than local paper or school paper, regionally published, uh, when I sent off my clips to national magazines to try to write for them. Uh, so I freelanced while just doing, you know, a standard like retail job for that first summer out of college. And then I wound up, uh, making a good impression at Guitar World magazine and, and they had a sister publication called Country Guitar Magazine. Oh, what a great name. Yeah. Uh, which is, let me tell you, if you like country music, the place to go is New York City. Uh, <laughs> because I would get on the phone with these guys and I would interview these country guitarists and they'd say, well, I can't believe you're doing a great story on little old me. I mean, I can't believe it's so nice of you people to do that. And what are, what are y'all doing up in New York city doing a country music magazine? Y'all got to come down to Nashville. We'll show you a good time. Oh, and I'm like, man. okay. Um, so, uh, yeah, I was, uh, I, I was fortunate that I got a full-time writing gig, uh, about six months after I graduated. So I was always freelancing on the side for something else. Like even as much as I love music and I love guitar and stuff and, and I, I learned to appreciate country music because it was not my natural idiom, uh, but it was a job, you know, outside of uh, right out of college in a, in a tough job market. Uh, but starting that time, I started to review uh, albums for different outlets and one of them said, hey, do you like video games? And I said, yes. Oh, because we review video games too. We're looking for a video game reviewer. So for about three years... I just did that on the side on my weekend nights and weekends. Uh, I would go to work every day in Manhattan at uh, Harris Publications, the folks that uh, then owned Guitar World and Country Guitar. And uh, there was a, an AOL area called Critics' Choice, which uh, eventually morphed into Critics.com, but I don't believe that any of my content ever made it over there. Mm. Um, and that was where I was. I was basically writing for free for two and a half years. 
They started paying me in the last six months that I was there, but I was allowed to keep the games. So I was building up my game uh, reputation as a, as a game reviewer uh, while I was working at a full-time job doing music stuff and interviewing guys. I was a managing editor at Country Guitar Magazine, which I didn't really understood was shorthand for wrangling cats, you know, like herding cats and <laughs> yeah. stuff. So uh, I didn't – it was a very organizational position, and I'm not a very organized person. So uh, I learned a lot, let's say that, uh, on the job. And uh, so I have always been freelancing but always with the luxury of having a day gig. Uh, what that did was put a strain on my social life and my romantic life. Mm. Um, you know, I was literally just every waking moment I was writing and I was working. Um, and that was very difficult for the first three years. I'm still very happily married to the same woman. Uh, so it all worked out, but I wasn't aware of just how much stress I was putting on uh, our relationship by saying, like, what do you want to do tonight? It's like, oh, I've got two deadlines. You know, I've got, yeah. I've got, I got to hustle, you know, so. I wound up getting a really good reputation for doing quality work and hitting deadlines and stuff like that, and, I, and that has served me extremely well through the rest of my career. But it was at the expense of being myopic. You know, I had that's all I wanted to work on. I just did that. So um, I basically went full time games uh, in '96. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a startup magazine that. Uh, it's sort of a misnomer because it didn't really start up. Uh, we got maybe two issues out the door. Uh, it was called Digital Diner. And the idea of Digital Diner, this is, again, the 1996. All these names have been great so far. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, the, the point of Digital Diner was we, we alternately pitched it as Rolling Stone for the Internet. So it was very much about the culture of how digital technology is affecting people's lives. Uh, and if that sounds like Wired, you're right because we used to call it It's Wired for Your Mom. It was supposed to be wired without the uh, the technical bent to it, and it was just more about how, you know, like, we did a cover story on Space Jam at the time because, oh, look, they're using computers to digitally mat, you know, cartoons in with, with uh, this and, uh, you know, things like that. And we would just do reports on games and movies and, and the emerging internet culture, and it was, it was at a time when you could still buy a magazine about the internet to tell you what the internet was. Uh <laughs> This was not a success for various different reasons, and I was there for a year before I uh, jumped ship, and uh, and I wound up at GamePro, and uh, that was another seven years. So even then, I was still, when I was at GamePro, I would wind up writing the occasional music article for my friends back at Guitar World, yeah. uh, specifically whenever they needed something written about Van Halen. I'm a big Van Halen fan, so hey, we need a like we need a three thousand word summary of the band's history. No problem, I'll do that on the weekend. It'll be fun, you know. So yeah, I've been very fortunate that I I have never really had to live hand to mouth uh, or wonder where my next paycheck was coming from as a freelancer. I always did freelancing in addition to whatever my full time job was. That's that balance you're talking about between like full time job and doing freelancing on the side is more difficult than I think a lot of people kind of give it credit for. Where you mentioned it, it kind of saps your social life. It saps a lot of that energy you have to even go out because you're doing this thing where on the weekends you may be reviewing a game, you're playing it for hours on end, and then writing about it or doing some sort of feature, and you love it because it's your passion. It's what you're really exactly. into. Like it's it's something that, and you need to do it to. And you mentioned you kind of had that like. You started to get like a reputation to be good at it and you know be consistent with it, and you need to keep doing it if you want to stay consistent with it. But it comes at a price, and you almost need that full time steady job if you really want to make 
money, and especially if you want to like, if you have a family, you have to have another job. When I graduated college, I got, I was very fortunate to get a full-time job outside of games right away, but I kept writing for GameSpot, I kept writing for IGN and stuff like that, and moving a new area, it did really affect my social life, but it was like, well, I love doing this, I'm going to keep doing this, I'm excited to hit these deadlines, but it's also... It's harder work than people give it credit for, because there's always the people who have yeah. never done this will always say, like, oh, man, you're, you're spending the weekend playing video games and writing about them. Like, when you have a deadline... Oh, but that you... must be so hard oh, for it's... you to sit on the couch and play. Actually, I have to review a Japanese RPG. Oh, I'm looking that's... at a minimum of 40 hours, but probably 120, and I don't want to hear about it. And that's you know, like, well I... <laughs> below minimum wage by the time you actually get paid for a freelance article like that, which, like, whatever, again, when it's your passion... Oh, for sure. Uh, and you did the same thing as me. I wrote for free for a long time because I wasn't... I needed to get better. I needed to get experience. I needed to get my name out there. I needed to build up to something. But back then, I didn't even care. As long as I, I got the free game, whatever. Sometimes I even bought the game just because I wanted to... I would, put, you know, invest in this career. And right. It is. It's it's a terrifying balance where uh, I mean, right now I I'm balancing kind of like a contractor position, but it's not nearly as you know intensive as like the freelance hustle. But I mean, it sure I, you had to have moments where you're just like, why am I doing this? Well, I mean, uh, you, you use the word passion, and I know it's kind of an overused word, mm. uh, but that's that's what it was. I really I loved music and I loved video games, and of course I hate both of them now because I'm old and jaded. <laughs> uh, no, but you know, like I I, I really. I felt fortunate that I was surrounded by guitarists and learning about like magazine production at this guitar magazine. Uh, but then I could still indulge my hobby being able to get free games, uh, from a, a, you know, a place that was very happy to have me working for them. Uh, and, you know, but I, I take my responsibilities sometimes too seriously. Yeah. And I would put the work above my family. Now, my wife and I don't have kids, uh, but we are like really addicted to each other. We, we value the time that we spend together. That's our, our happy place is just, you know, it's kind of hard. If you don't have kids, sometimes people go, but, but then what do you do all the time? You must be sick of each other. I'm like, no, it's like I, I don't have enough time with her. Yeah. Uh, fun side fact. My wife was Miss Spell at GamePro while I was Dan Electro. Really? So we worked together for several years. She worked at Harris Publications as well. We shared a cubicle. I was working on the guitar magazines, and she was doing uh, layout and art design for various other magazines like Car Buyer's Guides or Vampirella Comics. You know, She would work on that kind of stuff. So we would work together. And people did not realize that we were husband and wife. Uh, we actually disappeared for two weeks to go on our honeymoon. When we came back, they said, is everything okay? I'm like, what do you mean? They're like, well, we noticed that you were both gone and we know that you guys are close, but uh, was there a death in your family? They thought we were brother and sister. Oh, my God. Which is adorable. So <laughs> I, I'm here to tell you that you can be professional and work with your spouse yeah. and and still be professional and have not not have people go, oh, you know, they're a voting block or whatever. No, we, we disagree all the time. Uh, <laughs> we were creative partners in college first. And uh, and so we've always we we learned at an early time to 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 make that distinction. But then it did put a strain on that relationship when hey the other woman is actually these fifteen deadlines that I have to do this month. Mm. Um, and to be fair, this was the wild mid nineties. I would not say that I was very. <laughs> I wasn't necessarily very thorough on all of my reviews. A lot of them were more hot takey than I, they should have been. Yeah. And and looking back at, at my career, that's something that I've regretted. Uh, having worked with other people later who were very adamant, I'm going to finish this game. 
before I review it. Mm. There were many games I did not finish before I reviewed it. I yeah. played to a certain point. I had a certain understanding of it. I felt like I could shoot from that perspective, and I did. And when I look back at those reviews, I don't think I'm wrong. Like mm. I, I don't feel like I had given bad, bad uh, advice, but I still wish I had played the whole game before I reviewed it. Um, there have been a couple times where I did play uh, the game like intensely and as as much as one could assume, like you know, like games that don't have an end or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and then I still like I look at it and I go, yeah, I was wrong about that. You know, like a uh, Pac-Man Championship Edition DX. I can't believe I gave that game a low score. Oh, it's one of the it? best games. I gave it like a three out of ten at OXM. I was I don't know what Wait, I was what? on that week. Yeah, I know, and it's it's the biggest embarrassment, and I just I don't I don't know why I did that, and I got to go back and see, and I was like, it's okay, I guess it seems really hipster Pac-Man or something. Oh, I don't know what no. I said about it. I I totally regret that. I if I could retract it, I would. Um, but yeah, so uh, sorry, just to actually get back to what you're saying. Yes, the, the freelancing on the side with a with a day job, at least you can always make the rent, but you are going to have to sacrifice something. And yeah. I always think of it as like, you know, the old, uh, the triangle, you can have it fast, you can have it cheap, or you can have it good, pick mm. two. Um, it's kind of like that. You can have a full-time job, a part-time job, and uh, a happy social life, pick two, uh, because something's going to suffer. And in my case, it was my wife going like, I wish we could go out and do things. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I've, I've, there's a new need for speed again this year. I've, <laughs> I've got to get on that, you know. So it is a consideration. The, the the tangent you went on before actually really works in a, something else I want to talk about too because I think reviews you mentioned like your maybe your style has changed over time I, I I feel like reviews as a whole have matured and evolved over time where not that I'm one of those people who looks back and say like all those old reviews suck like no but it was always taken as um I mean even you look at like an old old GameSpot review is almost a math equation. Where it was almost yes. like, yeah, let's add these up and we can somewhat move the score with this reviewer's tilt. But other than that, like you were reviewing this, this product, this product, this, this HD TV. Is the screen right. clear? Does it sound good? Does it feel okay? All right. It's an, it's an eight. And then reviewer's tilt. I, I, I don't think this story is very good. We'll go to like 7.8. Like now it's much more you look at games as, I'm not trying to get all highfalutin and artsy here, but you kind of look them more as, artistic works where you're taking into account like maybe there's maybe this game does feel good look good sound good but this aspect really doesn't click with the rest this 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 thematic element doesn't work and suddenly games are being judged on different scales and to me that's much more interesting and i think there's value in many different types of reviews you can have the product review and then you can have the review where the game by all accounts plays really great and is fun but there's something about it that really turns you off and it's a lower score like do you see Do you see kind of the evolution as reviews as someone who like, you know, you and I aren't currently reviewing games actively, but are you kind of encouraged by the trend of how reviews are being written? Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to have seen it mature. And again, I say this as somebody who is, is responsible to some extent for some of the way that it used to be. Uh, my, my belief is that you should, when you review a game, you should be reviewing the experience. Mm-hmm. And that took me a while to get to, but that's as simple as I can put it. The experience is more than a checklist. The experience is how it makes you feel. Portal, as an experience, to me, was relevatory. I loved Portal. I felt like it was made just for me. You know, it was, it, this was the kind of game that I was waiting for forever. And yet, I had other people say, but it's only three hours. Ugh. And I'm like, 
But now, okay, so now you're putting the value of the game on the length of the experience. And I'm more about, do I want a five-course dinner of okay food, or do I want one really awesome cheeseburger? Yeah. I want one really awesome cheeseburger. That's what matters to me. So I can't – this is where the reviewer's tilt comes in. I can't help but review a game based on how do I feel about this? Am I enjoying the whole experience? Maybe the graphics are low res, but if the gameplay is there, then you know that will make me go, this is a good game. Just temper your expectations. It's not the best-looking game based on current graphical standards, but you're going to have a lot of fun. Yeah. And you know, I always, I always point to like Galaga, right? Like I can still play Galaga now. I grew up in the arcades in the in the early '80s, and so you know that is still everybody else. I feel like their first game was a Nintendo. Mine was a 400-pound piece of plywood, right? <laughs> um, like arcades still have a very strong emotional, uh, you know, nostalgic thing that I am never going to get away from. Uh, but Galaga, like the resolution is something insane, like 252 by 284, right? And they just blew it up on the screen. So by your modern standards, those graphics suck. And yet, this is a game that has proven itself with gameplay and the experience of playing it and the fun of balancing, uh, you know, how, how quickly do you shoot? Do, are you trying to waste shots or not? Uh, you know, at GamePro, it was very much exactly what you're talking about. It was a checklist. We had a template, a very strict template. And these templates were revised over the years. But the first thing that you are assessing is graphics. Then it is sound. Then it is control. Then it is the wild card of fun factor. Now, we did not consider fun factor to be a, a, an average or a median of the previous three scores. You could have something that was 2.5 for graphics, 4.0 for sound, 4.5 for control, and 4.5 for fun factor. Because that game was a lot of fun to play. As a control game, that's fun. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that our audience as that tween, right? Our, our core audience was like a 13-year-old boy. Yeah. That was based on our, our market. Um, they are looking at it in terms of I just got $25 for my birthday. I can buy three games for myself every year. Maybe I'll get an extra one for a holiday or a birthday or something like that. But maybe uh, that's that's how I profiled our audience. I get to buy maybe four – I make four purchasing decisions myself every year tops. I want to know that my – money is going to be spent on something that's going to give me a lot of value and they put value as time so a jrpg that gives you 120 hours of story might be way better than uh you know a a shooter where the the experience is over in 12 or 15 hours to them even if all of their friends are playing that shooter if it doesn't have multiplayer that would extend them the value of that then they feel like well that's that's a dumb decision to me yeah so that's kind of in the 90s, I think people did see, and even through a lot of the 2000s, people saw games as commodities. They're widgets. They're, yeah, like you said, like an HDTV, right? Like, well, am I going to get 10 years of value out of this HDTV? Am I buying something that's future-proof? Uh, let's tick off the boxes. Does it have – is it a smart TV? Can I update the TV's firmware? Uh, can I use a universal remote? These are the kind of like logistical things that come with owning a thing. You don't think, is this RPG going to make me cry? Am I going to get emotionally invested in the spy hero of the shooter? Do I really feel like this is what it's going to be like to drive a Ferrari? 
And yet that's the that's what you remember from the games that matter to you. You remember the experiences. You remember the feelings. So I want to assess games based on the feelings they give you and are they are they good at conveying those feelings? This is still super subjective because what might you know click with me might be cloying or or you know obnoxious to somebody else and it doesn't i don't have the same emotional connection with that game maybe people found portal to be cruel whereas i found it to be devious yeah. you know and i wanted to i wanted to go through that story i wanted to learn as much as i could about that world you know it seems like most people got it or else we wouldn't all be sick and tired of hearing the phrase the cake is a lie now uh, so, you know, Portal found its mass audience and people appreciated what it did, but you still have people going, well, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not paying $20 for Portal, I'm, uh, but I'll get the orange box because I get five games in that or whatever, you know, so I, I think that treating games as commodities is the wrong way to do it. I am very happy to see, of course, for a while there, we went the other direction as we got older, uh, and and the and the the sort of whole thing of games and I, I'm using finger quotes to call it games <laughs> journalism, um, to uh, you know has evolved. Then we did see people taking taking more creative risks. We saw the uh, new games journalism. Uh, we saw people talking about their personal experiences to the exclusion of explaining whether the game was good or not. Mm. They just said like, well, this is what I felt when I played it. And then you know, but I was reading your review. Because I actually do want to know: Did they fix the controls from the previous year? Uh, you know, what it, is is this really? Does this feel fun to, to to pilot a spaceship or whatever? And instead, it was all about like, well, you know, I like pancakes, and I was having pancakes with my friend Bob the other day, and we started talking about uh, you know how Chrono Trigger made us feel, and I really brought that to this game, and uh, really now playing this new RPG, it feels like they were trying to to take some stuff from Chrono Trigger, but it just doesn't have enough pancakes in it. <laughs> you know, and it, it 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 went the wrong way to me. It went like you you started. Pe- we saw people start to work in societal critique through gaming. Um, I'm sure uh, there's a, a journalist under the name of Always Black. Uh, he wrote a fantastic uh, uh, Star Wars Jedi Knight Two mm-hmm. article about his experiences playing multiplayer uh, and about how the uh how players would treat each other and there was a certain etiquette online and so that was not a review that was an actual journalistic piece looking at uh a lens of society through the microcosm of a games community that's great but when people started applying that to review well ultimately a review is a subjective analysis of something and if you put too much of your personal well this reminds me of this thing from my past. That's no longer relevant if somebody hasn't had that same experience. So I'm thrilled to see that people think more about what games represent in our culture. I'm thrilled to see that people talk more about the experiences that they get from games rather than just the nuts and bolts. This graphic doesn't look as good as the other game that's like this with graphics. That doesn't really matter unless you're just trying to justify your new television purchase. And you know, hey, I'm just like everybody else. I bought a new video card a couple of months ago, a couple of weeks ago, rather, and I've been firing up everything to see can I run it at maximum? It's fantastic <laughs> on a 1070. I love still it. I love checking it. Checking if you can run Crisis, just in case. Exa- yeah, crisis no, still can't run. run Crisis. Sorry, no, it's <laughs> impossible to do that. But you know, like it's kind of nice to go to your Steam backlog and go, oh yeah, now. Well, I had never had a chance to play this, but now I'm like pimp style you know i can yeah. go all the way with all this put all the sliders all the things give me all the all the smoke and fog um but yeah it's I, i'm we're still growing 
I, I think that we're still growing because we have those missteps like when people try to apply New Games Journalism to a review and it becomes too self-indulgent. And when that's the hardest thing because I don't know a writer, this is myself included, I don't know a writer that doesn't enjoy the sound of their own voice. Mm. You know, like you like to, you, you write because it's part of you and you want to put that part of you out there. But if it becomes solely about you, then you're doing a disservice to the audience. If you can't consider the audience's point of view or experience, or even who is this game targeted at? When they built the game, who was their audience in mind? And then you come in and you say, well, this, this doesn't appeal to me, so uh, it must be a bad game. And then that does a disservice to your reader. It does a disservice to the developer. It does, you know, it's terrible all across the board. My favorite example of this was classic EGM, Electronic Gaming Monthly. They would do the review crew where they would get four quick hot takes, you know, like 100 words from four different editors. The number of them that started with, well, I don't like Game Boy games, so <laughs> just blew my mind. Yeah. You're not reviewing the hardware. You're not, re- but you're saying I don't like this as a gaming experience. Okay, but it wasn't built for you. It's built for the person that has a Game Boy and is looking for new Game Boy experiences. So you have to be careful. Um, you you just you can't make it all about you, even though it has to fundamentally be your expression. So it's one of the it's one of the things. It's one of the reasons you should never be a writer, really. <laughs> that's really that. Yeah, that's that's the end point here. But no, I agree. It's we've swung really hard in the opposite direction of product review where we're, like you said, we're now at a point where a review starts with here is this issue I had as a child and how I developed. And here's why I think this way and that way and that way. And you're six paragraphs deep. And I have no idea what the hell this game looks like, plays like sounds like anything like that. And we don't want to swing so far where, I am very open to there are a lot of different kind of reviews and reviews going to be a lot of things, but we're not to a point where a 1500 word critical essay on let's use pancakes again is not a review of Chrono Cross or not a review of the new Final Fantasy game. You can absolutely make those references and I think it is really interesting when you do when you can put some of yourself in there and your personal experiences because like you said, this is your it's an experiential write up of this thing. It's 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 a subjective take on it, but there is still this, I don't want to use the word duty because it's a review, but there's like, if you're writing a review, you want to explain what is this thing like. I remember I, at one point I did get uh, one of my reviews back from Kevin Van Ord when I was writing for him at GameSpot where it's like, this is a really good review. I like it. I have no idea how this game plays. Like, you, you yeah. did not cover that. And I'm like, oh, you're absolutely right. And you have to go back and take yourself don't out of to it for a second. The game. Yeah, yeah so you forgot to review the game. I think you reviewed your like junior high tenure and kind of how you <laughs> dealt with this one breakup. Uh, but I have no idea what The Last Guardian is. So, like, you have stuff like that that you got to kind of look at where you you do have to make sure you're not swinging so far in the other direction. And you mentioned before, knowing your audience, I think, is super important because if you at GamePro are, are you realize that, okay, like, these 13-year-old uh, kids are kind of the ones who are reading this and looking for this advice. When I was younger, like, I you know, came up with not a lot of money, so I valued every new game I got, and sometimes I had to trade in every other game or sell every other game at a garage sale just to get Mm -hmm. just enough to get something a two-year-old game that was used in $15 or something like that and um, I think that's where a lot of that commenter anger might actually start uh, where because you as a 14-year-old kid only have this very low $60 $100 a year budget on games plus holiday plus birthday or whatever when you get a product and then you read a review that bashes it, you 
kick back because you invested, you made a choice, you exactly. want it to be validated. You want to make yes. sure like, no, 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 Dragon Ball Z Legacy of Goku on the Game Boy Advance is a good video game. I spent $20 on it. I, I don't care what you have to say, Game Informer. Like, you're wrong. It's not a five. It's an eight. And that's like this kind of reaction yeah. you i i need the review to validate my own opinion was something that we saw a lot at game pro again maybe it's because that's where that audience is in their development right mm-hmm. where they're like well i've decided from your preview that i am going to love this game oh yeah and i am looking forward to this and then when it comes out and we give it a a, a halfway decent review they get very angry and they would write us these nasty letters and i would i i came to believe that at least 30 percent of game pro readers were reading our reviews not for purchasing advice but for personal validation and the number i I will never forget this we gave metroid prime a 4.5 out of 5 right so we gave it a 9 out of 10 and it was a glowing review and it was wonderful but we didn't give it our maximum score (laughs) and we got such a howler from this kid who was like how dare you how dare you not declare that this is the greatest game of all time? Everybody I know says you're wrong about this. He, as if we had given it a 2 or a 3 out of 10, <laughs> he lit us up for giving it a 9 out of 10 and saying it was a great game. It just wasn't the end-all, be-all of games to our reviewer. And you know what's funny? I'm going to have to not tell the names here, but there was a, a review that uh, one of the publications that I worked for, we Mm. gave it a 9.5 out of 10. This was a major game that appeared on our cover more than once. Mm. And they expected a 10. The publisher expected a 10. And when we gave it a 9.5 out of 10, they brought down hell. They cut us off. We did not get complimentary copies of the game, which again, like if you're putting it on the cover... And they say, yeah, could you throw the staff each a personal copy so that they can continue playing the game after the review? It's not that unusual. It's not even, you know, that's not unfair. That's just sort of like a courtesy perk. If it happens, great. If it doesn't happen, great. But we figured like, hey, we've done a preview cover and we've done a review cover and we're, you know, we've been working well with these people. And it's, it's you know, could we're a small staff. Could you send us, you know, half a dozen copies? Yeah. They cut us off as soon as they found out what our score was. Uh, they didn't talk to us for three months. Oh, my God. They went to our publisher, screamed at the publisher on the phone for about an hour, and the publisher said, I think we need to meet about this. I know you're going to be in town. Let's go to dinner and discuss this. They went to dinner. The publisher screams at him in public for another hour, like raises his voice. This is over, at this point, point this 0.5 is over a score. a 9.5 out of 10. Because every other outlet gave them a 10. And they actually went and dug up, you gave this game a 10. Are you saying this game is better than oh, our game? I hate that. You gave this game a 10. Are you that saying this game is better than our game? Because I, I don't believe that that's true. And I think you need to print a retraction. You know, that kind of stuff. And so after six months of being frozen out by this publisher, they called and they offered an olive branch. And they said, um, you know, looking back on this, because we screwed up their press release because they put out a press release that actually said it has gotten perfect scores across the board from all national publications except one. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's how much it stuck in their craw that we 
gave our honest opinion and said this is a really fantastic game. There's a couple of nitpicks that keep us from giving it a full like and so <laughs> believe it or not our publisher said uh the magazine publisher side said you know they they asked him what can we do to make this right and the very first thing that the publisher said was well you know i think a nice gesture would be to actually send a copy of your your 20 million to copying selling game to the editors that worked on it and built all that content um and so like 6 months after all of us had gone out and bought personal copies we, we got six free copies of that game oh my god so you i mean there's something to be said for drawing that line in the sand and giving your honest opinion and backing it up. And again, this was not a small review. It was a major game. So, uh, you know, there was lots of evidence of both good and bad in the game. And uh, it was mostly good. It was an extremely impressive game. Um, but, you know, people are going to take it. That reaction reminded me of the reactions that I got from readers. When you don't validate what the person who just wants that review to tell them that they spent their money wisely or that they won't look like a fool to their friends for buying some second-rate game. If everybody is – all your friends wind up getting racing game B and you bought racing game A, well, then you look like the jerk, don't you? Because your friends are like, why would you buy that? So you lose face. But if you can say, hey, no – GamePro gave this uh, like a 4.5. You guys are crazy. This is a great game, and I bought it, so you should come on over to my side. It becomes this thing that, as a reviewer, I don't want to be part of your playground fight. Yeah. But to see that playground fight extended to the people that make the games and the, and the people who publish the games was horrifying. I mean, it was absolutely it – was, it was one of the worst things I've ever seen in my industry. I can't even like, – I've had – discussions over email with indie developers when i was uh like writing at GameSpot or even before that when i was coming up where i would give a game a certain review score and being honest about it and then being like well just letting you know you were the lowest score just letting you know so far you are <laughs> below average i'm like i'm not i don't need to compare myself my experiences right experiences. i'm not here not to hit I'm your doing. metacritic average and that's except one of- for like I, I one time there was a game that i gave like a 4.0 and the I, I felt that I was friends with the developers, which, all right, let's already start there, right? <laughs> but I had interviewed them enough, and I had covered their games enough, and I had done enough you know, developer visits that I had a rapport. These were very nice people. They knew what I was there to do. I, was, uh, I knew what I was there to do. I was not afraid to ask the tough questions, but we had a working rapport. And I gave their game a four out of five. And I was told, oh, the studio head is very angry. The studio, I'm oh, like, well, what do you want me to do? He's like, well, I mean, I guess there's nothing you can do, but he was, they were really upset about your sound score. I'm like, well, do you want me to talk to him? I can explain it some more. No, he's, he's off on a hunting trip. He needed to relax. I'm like, is he coming to San Francisco with his gun? <laughs> uh, you know, like- I, did, I didn't know. So, you know, you, you, people take it personally because – whether you're invested as a consumer by just buying the game or whether you've invested three years of your life or a year of your life or X million dollars to develop and market a game, everybody's got a stake at the table. So the, the critic can look cavalier like, well, I don't know. I mean, I just – I have infinite choice and if I were to make this choice, I wouldn't make this choice. And then yeah. they can walk away unscathed and that makes people remember your name. You know, if you if you look like you weren't taking that responsibility clear, even if you were, 
if they feel that you weren't because they have a different perspective they're like but i you know i missed my my daughter's confirmation for this uh, you know because i was working late i was on crunch and somebody goes uh eh, 6.8 worst score in the world it's not good it's not bad it's like milk toast you'll forget it in a week 6.8 uh, you know, then of course they're going to have an emotional or personal reaction. I did, <laughs> I did have somebody where I came into a demo when I was at GamePro, and you know the, the PR person was like, "Oh, and here's here's Dan, uh, Dan's from GamePro magazine," and the developer greeted me by going, "Oh yeah, you gave us a three point five for our last game." And it was not a game I had reviewed. It was a game that my outlet had reviewed. Mm. And I didn't know that we had given them a mediocre thing. I came in all smiles. I've always been a friendly guy. I try to ask questions. I'm like, oh, uh, yeah, you know what? I actually – I was not here at the magazine at that time. But they – like that was their first reaction was they had a vendetta in their mind. GamePro, those bastards that gave us only a (laughs) 3.5. I later found out – and I don't know if this still goes on. But uh, developer uh, – several several times my scores were used to justify a developer bonus. Mm. So you get paid, and then if the game hits certain sales goals, you get a bonus. Um, what I found out was that very often if a game hits certain review score yeah. thresholds, then you get a bonus. And when I was told that, I got so angry because I said I don't want my honest opinion – about your superhero game to be the deciding factor for a 13-year-old girl getting braces. That's You know like if if this if this is that important to you, why are you making a a hard financial benefit dependent on a complete stranger's subjective opinion and furthermore as you said, it's your duty. That is like that's where the sense of responsibility for taking responsibility for what you say, that's where it comes in. If I feel the responsible thing to tell my audience, my relationship is not with the developer. My relationship is with that 13-year-old kid or that 21-year-old woman or that 45-year-old guy, whatever. Whoever I feel my audience is, I'm supposed to be shooting as straight as I can and giving them as much insight as I can. Their experience may differ, but here's my experience and here's what, here's how I came to that conclusion. Rewarding a developer for a job well done is really not part of my equation. So I was horrified to find out, like, and we saw this at, uh, at OXM once, um, Dead Space One. I was about to bring that one up. Yeah, the Metacritic bonus. Dead Space was, uh, it got an 89 on Metacritic, and apparently the developer was going to get a 90. If, if they would get a bonus if they got 90, we gave it like a 7.5 or something. I remember uh, somebody suggesting that the game was basically being a FedEx guy in space. Go do this <laughs> fetch quest now. Go do this other fetch quest. There's going to be some monsters. Go do this other fetch quest. Um, and you know they were really bent out of shape about that to the point where the developer talked to another outlet about how unfair he felt our review was, and he said, "Yeah, you know, there's that that one review that kept us from getting." Uh, a 90. Uh, what that developer failed to say was that on PlayStation, they got an 88 yeah. average. It wasn't us that was like the deciding. We actually, are, the Xbox Metacritic was one point higher. They just didn't break 90 and they took it out on us. And maybe, maybe their bonus was only based on the Xbox 360 version. I don't know. But that kind of stuff, I don't feel, I feel like it's one of the worst misappropriations of reviews and review scores that I've ever seen. Because you can't be beholden. You can't think, well, this guy's not going to be able to take his family on vacation because if I don't like the sound enough, 
you know, that's, that's not it. That's, and, and that it compromises the entire process and it's not fair. And yet you, there's nobody that, that is going to listen to that. There's like, if, if the developer, if the publisher feels that that's the right way to do something, then that's how they're going to do it. So I don't know if it still goes on or not. I've actually intentionally not asked. I uh, want to know at this point, here. but like, I absolutely agree that that can't be on your mind when you're reviewing a game that, you know, if, I don't like this game. It is going to negatively impact the developer. You can't think about the fact that, like, oh, well, they crunched a lot at the end. They had, you know, 80 to 100-hour work weeks. I need to consider that. Or, oh, they their their publisher pushed them to release this game early, so I'm going to give this a higher score because it must have been very right. difficult. Like you, like you said, you, you are doing this as a service to your audience who does not care if that person goes on vacation or how the development went, they are spending their money on a final product that you are critiquing. And that exactly. is something you have to look at. But has has working for – you work for Activision and Ubisoft and you know, mm-hmm. as I've mentioned before, right now I am uh, working for Tan Gentlemen. We're doing Here They Lie for Sony Santa Monica. And, uh, plug, 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 plug. Plug, plug, plug. And <laughs> um, it is coming out soon. And right now <laughs> I am uh, – I am terrified of – because now I'm on the other side. I've always been the person – I will always be the person who sees – like I want to make sure people are giving their real opinions about a game. But I'm absolutely terrified of what people are going to say, not because I am unsure of the quality, but because you just never know. I've never been on this side of the equation where I am waiting for the Metacritic to come out. I'm waiting for these people who – you know, I have relationships with that I, you know, respect very much to have a very, you know, an opinion about this thing that I've put a lot of, of time into. So has working for these studios being this close, let's say you went back to start reviewing games tomorrow, God forbid, because that's a whole different thing after going where you were. Would, has that changed at all how you look or critique games or is it the same? Well, I always tried to be empathetic. I always did try to remember that even behind the worst game, there was somebody who was doing the best they could with what they had to work with. Uh, and, you know, that may be a compromised schedule. That may be a compromised budget. Uh, it may simply be ambition uh, that can't be realized with the talent of the team. But mm. nobody sets out to make a bad game. So from my, the beginning, I didn't, I've, I've always tried to consider what were they trying to do you know, what does it look, if it's still $60, right? If it's $60 for a bad game versus $60 for a good game, then that's really all that matters to the consumer. But I always, I've always just been empathetic and I always try to consider that. Seeing stuff more close up, I did not expect to see as much as I saw. Yeah. Um, I definitely, I could still go back and review games, but I would have a lot more insight. What I'd rather have is reviewers who have more insight even though they don't work at a studio. Um, One of the things that I recommended in Plug, 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 Critical Path, uh, (laughs) how to review games for a I plugged, you can plug too. Yeah, I appreciate it. Um, One of the things that I suggested there was something that I don't think a lot of my compatriots did. Uh, I was curious, you know, they, they say that every... Every filmmaker or every film critic is a failed filmmaker, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and every every music critic is a failed rock star. That suggests that these people have tried to do what they're reviewing, and they have an understanding and an empathy for it. They understand what it's like to try to create music before they go out and tell people how they should do it. And a filmmaker, even if you're just shooting camcorder footage in your backyard and trying to edit together a story – you understand the challenges of bringing a vision to film, and that makes you qualified to be a film reviewer. 
Video games has no such entry-level requirements. You don't have to build a video game in order to say, hey, guys, <laughs> I know video games. I'll tell you what you did wrong with your $20 million budget. You know? <laughs> yeah. And I think that that's, that's something that can be solved through personal responsibility. I actually <laughs> – I chose text adventures. Mm-hmm. I grew up playing the Infocom text adventures like Deadline and The Witness and Zork and a bunch of other games that are probably completely irrelevant now. Uh, you can get them for like $5 on iOS. They're that good. Um, and, you know, I don't know how to build graphics. I don't know how to generate 3D uh, models. I don't know how to program in an engine. But I can write. So I came up with just a very simple thing. All I wanted to do was create a very simple interactivity puzzle. I had a big room and a small room. And I had a door connecting those rooms, and I had a button that was red that it worked a red machine in the other room, and a button that was blue that worked a blue machine. I never finished that game. <laughs> I worked on that game for about 30 hours trying to figure out, what the fuck am I doing wrong? Mm-hmm. I had an appreciation. I also did like some mods for Quake 2. I made skins, uh, you know, stuff like that. Having some sort of appreciation for what it means to create a video game makes you a better reviewer for that very reason that you, you are now, you're not on the same level because obviously people are making things spiralingly more complex, teams of 150 people, whatever they're doing. But an indie developer has that same experience. It's one person, maybe five people, maybe 10 people tops. And they're doing amazing things, but you don't know how the sausage is made. Until you get in there and figure out how the sausage is made, I don't think that you can really appreciate the effort that goes into it. And therefore, you need to, you do need to factor that in. It's not as important as this game doesn't deliver for the price that I paid. There is a simple value prop. There's also, you know, uh, opposite the value prop you mentioned, like our game's art and, and treating them as art objects. Uh, you know, a 13 year old kid, a game pro reader that wants to buy this new game is not going to go, but it's art. You know, oh, <laughs> well, all right. Really, yeah. really sophisticated 13 year old. Let's not, yeah, I don't you, know. you can give him some credit here. Kid. Do not pick up Metal Gear Solid. Just get Dear Esther. You know, like they're not going to want that. You have to consider that audience, and and you can't just review things in a vacuum. But some of that, I think, does. You started out by saying, w- "Would I approach review differently if I went back to it?" And and I'll be honest, I've thought about it. I miss writing it. I I thought I was good as a reviewer, and I felt confident in my skills of being able to break something down and explain it to other people and say, "You now you make the choice as to whether this these factors matter to you." Um, I would be able to do it. I would probably be even more empathetic, but I'd like to think that I came in with a certain amount of empathy that I had developed as a reviewer as I started to get more curious about the process. I think if you shut yourself off from the process uh, and you know, if you're a food critic but you never try to cook yourself, I think that's unfair. Yeah. I think you have to at least have a nodding familiarity with what it is. And being able to like uh, – you know, the guys at Treyarch uh, when I was at Activision, they were very, very nice to me. Uh, we worked a parking lot across from each other. So I was able to go over to Treyarch and I was able to ask them questions and sometimes just hang out. And uh, you know, I'd go to uh, events and like all the press would be there and all the influencers would be there and I would sneak away and I'd go see somebody's desk and just say hello because we'd been talking about some hobbies or whatever. And I would inevitably see things and I'd go, so what's that and how does that work? Because they knew that I was, you know, I was under NDA. I wasn't going to say anything, but I was just like, so what's this process like? And then finding out what their processes were like, I was like, wow, okay, yeah, that's how you keep something as big as Call of Duty moving forward 
on a deadline with expectations, and yet you still have to innovate every year and you have to do all that stuff. So uh, I could do it. I would because I know that my responsibility is to the person first. If there was anything that I felt like, oh well, I know those guys too well, then I would recuse myself. Yeah. I would I would just say, you know what, I'm too close to the team. Uh, a little known fact is that I got the opportunity to provide a voice for the Sims once, mm-hmm. and. Uh, I got that opportunity because I had met the developers to do a cover story on The Sims when it came to console for Game Pro, and then I was singing in an '80s band, and oh, the, amazing. I was singing in at like, and we played a gig across the street from where Max's offices were. Mm. Uh, so I let them know I was like, "Hey guys, uh, I'm going to be playing a gig. If you guys want to come over, I know you're on crunch, but you know, come over have a beer. We're going to be playing for like four hours." So they came over and they were just like, you know, they sort of like gave me the thumbs up and then they had to go back to work. Um, and then like two weeks later, they're like, yeah, we really enjoyed your show. We need somebody to sing in Simlish. Uh, would you would you be interested in doing that? And I said, oh, my God, I would love to. Let me ask my editor. So I went to my editor in chief and I'm like, look, I have this opportunity. I'll probably never have this opportunity again. It's casual. It's going to be one day. I just go into their their recording studio at Maxis. They're going to tell me what they want to do, and uh, are you okay with that? This is a conflict of interest. He goes, well, are you going to review that game? Are you going to cover that game? I'm like, well, obviously not. He goes, then it's not an issue. Yeah. Okay, so I never touched it, uh, and it didn't even get the best review from GamePro. <laughs> it was like, eh, it's okay. You know, like they made some decisions. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was like, eh, it's fine. You know, it's good. If, you, if fans of the genre will like oh, it, you know. It's a bag, really. Yeah. <laughs> it has... It has workmanlike controls, you know, whatever we say. But um, yeah, and and so you you have uh, there are certain teams that I would I would feel like yeah I would never be able to review like uh, a, a Ubisoft game if I left Ubisoft, and I probably wouldn't be able to review any Activision games because I think the 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 stain of impropriety would be there even if the sin was not committed. Uh, you know, it's uh, I always, one of the phrases that I always use in terms of both community and in press. Um, it's not. Reality, it's the perception of reality. Yeah. It it doesn't matter that you are an above-board journalist doing everything uh, the way that it, it should be ethically done. If somebody out there believes that you're not, then the accusation is enough to kill your career. Oh, totally. Um, the very strong – and I don't, I don't make this analogy lightly, but I think about uh, Craig Charles, who was the star of Red Dwarf, the BBC comedy science fiction series. Mm. He was accused of rape. This was maybe a decade ago. Yeah. He went to trial and he was exonerated. He was not. It was just a vindictive ex. He had done nothing wrong. The press basically called him a rapist for two years. Yeah. And afterwards, he said, like, I would really like there to be the benefit of the doubt for – I understand that we need to keep the, the victims – protected but there you know a disservice was done to me because i was accused of something that i did not do and yet everybody assumed i did it and people had a field day and it was okay and i feel like again as strong as analogy as that is being accused of impropriety is as bad it doesn't matter you could do whatever you wanted to do to try to prove that you were ethical and that you did not step over a line and that you you were fair in your judgment but if somebody out there just makes the suggestion that you were not your career is over, and there's nothing you can do about it. It's fundamentally, completely unfair. Uh, so 
yeah, I would not be able to put myself in a position where I could say this new game from Ubisoft, who I used to work for, by the way, you know, the, the disclosure that you would have to do oh, also makes you feel makes it well. Then I can't believe anything. I I recently bought a pair of headphones on Amazon. I was traveling a lot this summer. I wanted noise canceling headphones. I read seven positive reviews. All seven of those reviews said I was compensated with either a free product or a discount on this product in exchange for my opinion, but I have done nothing wrong. And even though they're probably right, because, you know, I have to give them the benefit of the doubt as somebody who has reviewed products. I want the benefit of the doubt that I'm being honest. I want you to trust me as a reviewer. And that means a lot of self-policing. But sure enough, I wound up writing my own review of that and said, well, here's an honest opinion from somebody who was not compensated. But I, I felt the need to throw that, like, you know, to twist that knife because I, I realized I, I bought this based on, on reviews that were possibly compromised and the possibility that they were compromised, that they would have said, these are really good. They turn out to be okay. Yeah. But, you know, like I, in my review, I mentioned things that other reviewers did not mention. Uh, theirs were mostly pretty you know like sunny reviews they were all like eight and nine and you know four four stars five stars everything is great with these headphones and thank you for sending them to me you know uh, i've also met other uh young writers that i worked with earlier in my career that really like you they would claim otherwise but if you looked at their reviews if it was a game they got free it got a really high score if it was a game they had to buy themselves it got a really low score it all comes down to personal responsibility. That is something that I think is totally true, where when, especially if you are coming up, let's say you're 16, 17, 18 years old, you want to do this for mm-hmm. a career, but you're getting free games for the first time, running for a very small site, almost so always. So hard. Almost so hard always. Not to just have so hard. In your eyes. When yeah. I, and I've admitted this before, like, I don't really feel like I've ever given an awful game an 8 out of 10 because it was free, but I do remember one of the first <laughs> games I ever got for free was Garbage. I don't remember the name of it. Uh, should have been like a four. I think I gave it like a six because back then I, you know, I had tens of views on this review. But for me, it was just it was really hard to separate this. Like this is my first publisher relation. This is this is a game that you know it's actually in a box. It's not a download code, and like I don't I don't think it's that great, but it's okay. And you start almost making yourself believe that it's better because you did get it for free, and you start ignoring things like that. And I do, yeah. I think, I think I'm on the same page as you that if I went back, I would be able to. I might be a little bit more empathetic. I. But I feel like I would still be able to just as effectively do the job. Even if I couldn't, there'd definitely be certain, like, I couldn't do the new God of War because I have a relationship with Sony Santa Monica. Or there's certain people who right. I'm very, very close with that might be an indie, indie developers. So let's say there's three people working on a game. I would feel very bizarre now with, like, all the knowledge I have. Where, like, oh, it would be tough. But it would be, it would be different. But I, I do think about it a lot. I think about going back. I think about, you know, wanting to at least give it another shot, even if the, it's, it would be slightly different. If when I was sense. at Activision, I, I, was, I, <clears throat> I knew that my time at Activision, my contract was coming to a close. I wanted a change. I didn't really enjoy Los Angeles. That's the nicest understatement I can possibly make. <laughs> uh, but LA and I were not compatible. And I did reach out to an editorial outlet that had a, a, a position that I thought I would be qualified for. And a friend at that outlet said, well, look, I would love to work with you. But after sort of kicking this around in the office, uh, there's a lot of people that think that that you would be compromised 
because I had worked for a major publisher. And I was like, well, of course I'm not going to touch anything Activision does. I know too much. I I can't tell you anyway because I'm under NDA for literally the rest of my life. (laughs) There is no expiration date to my NDA with Activision. Um, And that's not unusual, but it it was – on my way out, everybody said, good luck on your next thing, or glad you're going back to the Bay Area. We know you miss it. You miss your friends. That's great. Here is another copy of the NDA that you signed four years ago. <laughs> I got a physical copy uh, on my way out the door. I got an email copy the next day, and I got a postal mail copy of it the week <laughs> after my new address. Oh, they take security seriously at Activision. Um, but, yeah, that's uh, that's that's – that's a serious thing. Yeah. No, without a doubt. Uh, and I do want to give you, I don't keep you too much longer. Uh, I do want to give you an opportunity. Like you, like I mentioned, you are working at Ubisoft now. Uh, yeah. Ubisoft has a lot of cool games coming out. So for you as someone who works there, uh, what, and you can, you know, if you want to break the NDA right here, you can. But what about uh, the, the near future of Ubisoft has you most excited, whether it be, you know, projects that are getting new DLC or new projects that are coming out entirely? Well, uh, again, my, my sphere is really here in San Francisco, so I don't always have the insight into other games. Mm. Uh, occasionally I get to do sort of internal play tests or, uh, or, you know, usually the most times that I get to play other games are going to PAX or E3 or whatever and be like, hey, you know, after the booth closes, can you run us through? You know, I got to play Star Trek Bridge Crew. Um, I have a lazy eye. Um, some people know this, some people don't. I try to hide it in photos, but. You've done a good job. I, I had no idea. Thank you. Yeah, I have I have a lazy eye. I can pull it back in for photos. Like the school photos, I look like a normal human being, but then after that, it just rolls right back out. Um, as a result, I've been excited about virtual reality for almost my entire life to the point where when it started to seem like it was going to become a real thing 15 or 20 years ago, uh, and I felt it was right around the corner, I was like, oh my god, this is going to change how I interact with the world. I already prefer to be on a dial-up BBS to uh, real-world communication, uh, how the hell am I going to be able to navigate real life if I can just go into VR and do whatever I want whenever I want? Um, that said, we're finally there, and Star Trek Bridge Crew is the bomb. <laughs> <laughs> I First of all, I didn't know if I would be able to see VR, and I can, so that's, that's good. Great. So if you have a lazy eye and you're worried about that, give it a try anyway. You might be surprised. Um, Star Trek Bridge Crew, I got to be the helmsman. I have never been so excited to push a virtual lever <laughs> as taking the ship out. I was just like, oh my god. So um, Werewolves Within is another VR thing, and I really was very skeptical of Werewolves. It's the card game Werewolf, but uh, it's in a VR thing. And I'm like, but this whole thing is about reading people's nervousness and their facial tics and, and body language and trying to tell who's lying. How on earth can you do that? Well, you know what? They did it. They do it with body language. They do it with tone of voice. The game responds very intelligently to the stimulus that it's given. So uh, to my own surprise, thinking I would never be uh, – first of all, I, I gave up on VR being a thing. And then second of all, I thought I would, uh, I would never enjoy it because of my eyes. Uh, I'm actually really stoked for Ubisoft's VR lineup. Um, even though I don't have VR headset uh, hardware myself yet, uh, I did buy a video card this year so I can hopefully get some VR gear next year. Um, and of course, I'm always most most uh, happy about uh, my own studio's games, which is uh, South Park, uh, The Fractured Butthole, oh, yeah, which yeah. Uh, I had the joy of uh, of demoing that for uh for PAX and for Gamescom with a special VR peripheral 
that goes over your nose. Oh, that, the smell thing. Yes, Nauseous Rift. <laughs> I got to run Nauseous Rift demos, and the other demoists were like, "Hey, yeah, no, you're gonna you're gonna love the future VR. It's gonna be a lot of fun." And oh, I'm sorry, I I failed at this jump. I guess I should do it again, but I'm gonna have to fart some more to get past this puzzle. <laughs> and I was the only guy that was like, "Don't do this. Don't do, watch your friends do it, but don't do this. You have to." We made them sign a waiver. Oh, it must have been um, really bad. It was terrible. It was ter- and I could smell it the whole time, even though I wasn't wearing the device because I was, I was smelling distance from the device. So um, I am happy to say that South Park looks really, really good. Obviously, I can't say anything about it. Yep. Uh, but uh, if you're a fan of the show and if you're a fan of Stick of Truth, this is going to deliver uh, a lot of really, really good content. Uh, and Rocksmith is my perfect merging of games and guitar yeah. where you plug a real guitar into your PC or your console and you learn how to play real guitar it, if to the uneducated it looks like Guitar Hero but it's not it's actually you're playing the real notes on the real strings and then once you get good at the game the game automatically starts making the notes invisible so that you go oh my god I'm riding the bike you know <laughs> uh, it's it's designed to to it's it's designed to make itself redundant. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, well, thanks for buying Rocksmith. We hope that you play Rocksmith enough that you will no longer play Rocksmith. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm really excited for, uh, like, outside of my own titles uh, for, for UBVR. And uh, I, as a resident of the Bay Area, I'm very curious to see Watch Dogs 2. I want to know what they do to the door of our office. <laughs> like, you can't you can't make a game based in San Francisco from a Ubisoft developer and not acknowledge that Ubisoft's headquarters is in San Francisco. What happens? Is there a mission? Like, do I get to knock on the door? Does something interesting happen? Oh, I you hope know? so. I really hope so too. I have, and you know what? I have asked my fellow community team over there, and they're like, "Ah, you'll see, you'll see," and they won't tell me. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah. Um, the rest of the time, I'm just playing catch up on older games. I'm still playing Doom. Um and, and that looks amazing with the Vulcan API. Doom so uh, With the new the yeah I'm as an old school Doom guy I was uh, I'm I've one of my my bragging points is oh yeah I was there at the Doom two release party at the Limelight in New York oh, City man. you know like I love being able to drop that one uh but you know I've been a I've been a big Doom fan uh, for a very long time and uh, the new game really scratches my itch so totally not a Ubisoft thing but that's everybody else has probably already finished Doom and I'm still like savoring every morsel of it I'm playing like an hour at a time uh, on the weekends when I can get you know when I can get some time stuff like that so. We'll see it through. It's it's great. I, I'm, I'm not even I'm a huge really original Doom guy, and I fell in love with New Doom. Yeah, um, it's really it's, good. It's really good, and I'm happy you get to play VR. So here's my last plug: When Here They Lie comes out on VR, PlayStation VR from Sony Santa Monica and Tan Gentlemen, you should totally play it. I'm just all right. I think I think I will. Is you that should. coming out for the Vive? Uh, the v- it is not. It is a oh, PlayStation exclusive. Oh, I'm but sorry. If you happen to have a PlayStation <laughs> VR, you should play Here They Lie by Tan Gentlemen and Sony Santa Monica. Okay, um, Dan. Thank you so much for doing this. I feel like I still have a billion questions for you, but I don't want to keep you for three hours. Um, we can do it again I, if you if you have a follow ups or if people listen to the show and say, "Here's what Dan was wrong about," and we can talk about that too. Oh, totally. I would love to have a "Here's what Dan was wrong about" podcast. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's going to be even longer. <laughs> so, if people want to find you on uh, Twitter, what's what's the best way? What's your handle? Uh, my handle is at Dan Amrick. My brand, you know, is mm-hmm. Dan Amrick. D a a d a n a m r i c h because I'm from Slovak descent, so it's a hard ch. It's spelled rich, but I'm a writer, so I'm not. 
is what I always <laughs> used to say. Um, uh, so yeah, uh, at Dan Amrick there, um, on Facebook, uh, if, if you have, if you'd like more things in your MP3 player or your Zune, as the case may be, um, I am part of a band, uh, called Palette Swap Ninja. Mm-hmm. And, Another uh, we great make- name. We make funny, uh, supposedly funny songs about video games, uh, Weird Al style parodies. Uh, it's a friend of mine in Boston and I who've been doing this, and all of our stuff is free. Uh, so if you want, like, some really dated songs about the Wii shortages around Christmas or uh, the three red lights of the Xbox 360, uh, we are working on a full length album right now, but you can get all of our other stuff for free uh, at palettswapninja.com. All right, great. Well, thank you again, Dan. I really do appreciate it. Uh, And thank you, everyone, for listening. Hopefully tune back in for the next episode of the 1099.